It's Left of Baseball with Adrian Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome, everybody, back to Left of Baseball, where we talk about the intersection of baseball politics and social justice. I am here with my colleagues, as always, Lincoln Mitchell and Craig Calcaterra. Adrian, as Lincoln likes to say, is on assignment, and maybe at some point in this uh, podcast, we can give you a preview of where he is. Um, but we also have today really special guests to me. Um, we are, are going to talk about the lockout, which I'm sure you know all about already, but being the kind of podcast that we are, we're going to talk about it in a different way, which is in the context of what is going on in American labor relations right now, employer-employee relationships, contract negotiations, and how all these things are kind of similar and differently and reflect on what's going on in American society and politics as we do. So I'm, I'm really excited to introduce two really good friends of mine, and they actually happen to also be married, which I'll get to later. <laughs> um, Jean-Marc Favreau is a, a union side labor lawyer at the law firm of Pierre Gann and Gisler. Is it Gisler in Washington, DC? So he's a major power player. Um, he's a Yankee fan, which is excellent, um, but he also roots for the Expos because he's originally from Montreal and that's a whole nother story. Um, and Alyssa Layton, my other really good friend, um, she's also in the labor movement, part of a major international uh, union in DC. Um, sadly, she's a lifelong Red Sox fan. And apparently, I guess it has something to do with having grown up somewhere around there. Um, <laughs> the marriage eludes me. <laughs> I have known these guys for like 15 years. I'm still trying to understand. But we forgive her because she's a wonderful, wonderful person. And they have also a wonderful, wonderful daughter, I should add. If you're if you're a Red Sox fan and are from New England, it's an accident of birth and can be forgiven. If you're not from New England, it's just your way of telling us you went to Harvard. So generous of you. Thank you. Anyway. Which he did as well. But yeah, that's another story. <laughs> uh, I don't think I knew that. But so anyway, we, we always try to start um, having these conversations by finding out how you got your love of baseball and what your baseball journey was. And so, and then, I mean, obviously you also at some point in this have to explain how it is you're married, but Alyssa, why don't you tell us how, how you got to this place in life? Sure. Um, thank you, Tova, for the introduction. Um, and thanks everyone for, for having me, for having us. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, well, my baseball journey is as a uh, Lincoln guest that I grew up in New England. Um, mostly outside of Boston. And, um, you know, my single mother raised me and my brother and she liked taking us to, to sporting events, you know, that she could afford. So a lot of college basketball games and uh, bleacher seats at Fenway Park, um, which I, in the early eighties, I think were like $6 each. Um, so I grew up as a Red Sox fan. Um, mostly, you know, mostly in the 80s. So, of course, um, one of my most formative memories was the 1986 World Series. Um, and meanwhile, uh, my dad had grown up in Brooklyn as a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Um, so when we went to visit family in New York, uh, he refused to take us to Yankees games, of course. Um, so I got, did get to see a lot of Mets games uh, in the 80s uh, as well. Um, and then after college, I moved back to Boston. Um, so, you know, I was lucky enough at that time to get to see Pedro Martinez pitch many times uh, at Fenway Park. Um, and uh, some trivia about me that uh, probably even Tova doesn't know is that the greatest distance I ever went for a baseball game was Japan. Um, when I visited Japan in the early 90s, um, I saw a baseball game there, uh, Yokohama Bay Stars. Um, was the home team. Um, and it was really amazing to, to get to experience a game the way fans in Japan do. Um, at, at one fun part of that game was that at least at the time, they didn't have a seventh inning stretch. I don't know if they do now, but at the time they didn't do a seventh inning stretch, which we weren't expecting. So my friends and I took it upon ourselves to stand up sing take me out to the ball game with all of the fans uh just staring at us having no idea what we were doing um so that's a great baseball memory sean mark why don't you uh, tell us your baseball story sure sure so i um i was born in montreal but uh really grew up in new york city um uh, my grandparents raised me 
And, you know, we're, we're talking about baseball and labor today. And it, it's funny because my love of, of both and my interest in both uh, stem from my grandfather, uh, who was a good, uh, he was a World War II vet. Um, and then uh, sort of a la Howard Zinn came back and uh, was a pacifist and a, and a socialist. Um, so I got my politics from, from him, but I also got my love of baseball from him. And I think it started, you know, this is one of those memories that I'm not sure if I really remember or if I've heard the story over and over again, but um, it was 1978 um, and uh, the Yankees were playing the uh, the Red Sox um, to, uh, I believe it was to get to the playoffs. And uh, there was a shortstop on the Yankees, you may remember, <laughs> named Bucky Bleep and Dent. Um, and he had a middle name, you know. <laughs> what was his real middle name? <laughs> his middle name was, or his real middle name is Earl. Earl, oh. it's like in the song. His real name is Earl. His name is Russell Earl Dent. I never knew that. I knew I'd learn a and, lot. On this and the Yankees in that trade where they got him, one of the players they sent over was Lamar Hoyt, who recently shuffled off as mortal. Oh, right. Oh, wow. Okay. I knew I was going to learn a lot more about baseball just being on this podcast. But anyway, we um, we were apparently, my grandfather and I huddled around a, a little radio in, in the playground behind our apartment complex with about like 20 or 30 other people uh, when uh, Bucky Dent hit that that home run and uh, it was mayhem. Um, so from that point on, uh, even though my my grandfather had really been a, a New York Giants fan, um, the baseball the baseball team, uh, the Giants, um, uh, I became a Yankee fan, and I still continued to follow the the Expos. Um, but uh, I was a big Yankee fan, uh, still am, uh, despite my uh, my my beautiful bride. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's get to that though. All right. So what's the story there? First time I saw Alyssa was in DuPont circle, uh, where I joined a uh, group called run against Bush in, uh, 2004. Uh, this was a group that Alyssa and her cousins and friends had, had started to raise money, um, for the Kerry campaign. Uh, and I walk over to DuPont circle and I see this beautiful woman in a, uh, a Red Sox hat. And I think something in me must have saw it as a challenge. I, I don't know, but she was somehow more attractive in the Red Sox hat. Um, and we became quick friends, uh, watched a lot of that baseball season together um, while uh, we had other uh, partners at, at the time. And then... Um, Finally, uh, asked her out on a date. Uh, it, it was really a question as to whether this was a date because we had been getting together for all the um, all the ball games uh, anyway. So I was, you know, asking her out on the uh, game three of the 2004 uh, playoffs um, between the Yankees and uh, the Red Sox. And I decided instead of watching the game in its entirety, maybe we should do something else. So I invited her to a concert um, and uh, we went to the concert and after the concert, we came out and went to the bar where the, uh, at the venue and we saw the score, which was, I don't know what, like 20 to nothing or something really, really crazy at that time. And I saw the look on Alyssa's face just completely, you know, turned South. Um, and I tried to console her. Uh, you did. It was and, very sweet wrote her a poem the next day about, you know, how maybe, maybe the Red Sox will come back. Oh God, it's all your fault. We finally know. (laughs) The rest is history. Anyway, these guys are also um, major figures in the labor movement. And we do want to talk about what's going on in labor, in baseball and in the world. So I'm going to kick it off to Craig to just give us a little bit of the state of play. I know that our listeners will know a lot about what's going on, but just to set the stage here. The the state of lack of play more like no, they wouldn't be playing anyway. It doesn't matter. Um so yeah, on uh midnight at midnight, in fact, I think they the the CBA expired at 11:59 on uh Wednesday, uh, December 1st, and at 12:01 a.m. on Thursday, December 2nd, Major League Baseball instituted a lockout. They had voted on this already. 
Um, and they had a full seven minutes worth of negotiations on the, the final day. So you can tell it was a very urgent situation on the part of the owners um, before they got in their black Tahoes and Suburbans and went to the airport. Um, so we're locked out. And, you know, the basics of a lockout are, are pretty straightforward. Uh, there is no communication between teams and players outside of the negotiating process. And that's not even happening now yet either. But um, there is no uh, ongoing training, ongoing coaching, ongoing medical uh, intervention between players and teams. This is a complete cone of silence on both sides, which, hey, that's the point. Uh, the uh, the plan now is no plan. There are, there are no uh, scheduled, as we are recording this on December 3rd, there are no scheduled negotiations uh, between the owners and the players. Not terribly surprising. They're going to take a little bit of time, let things simmer. Um, and then, uh, you know, hopefully they will, they will begin talking again. Uh, but if no agreement is reached, uh, there is, well, they're certainly already canceled the, the major league portion of the winter meetings. There's a minor league component of it, which is actually much larger that will go on. So there will be news from the winter meetings. Uh, if no agreement is reached, spring training will not start on time. Uh, players will not be paid. If the regular season begins, games will not be played. It's the usual, uh, the usual thing. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where things stand. Just because I will enjoy it so much, Craig, do you want to comment at all on the posturing of uh, baseball and the players? <laughs> date? So, I mean, the very short version is, uh, you know, they're, they're fighting over uh, the, the players want to change what has been a very longstanding status quo as far as how long it takes to get to arbitration and how long it gets takes to get to free agency. Those have basically been set in stone since 1976 for free agency, since the early 90s for uh, for arbitration with some various tweaks. Uh, and for a lot of very legitimate reasons, they want to change that because now younger players, less highly paid players are uh, shouldering much more of the burden in Major League Baseball as far as innings and work, uh, service time being accumulated. Uh, so way less money is going to the players overall because the players that are being used are younger and and lower paid uh that's why they want to shift the window there the owners say no that's not even going to be on the table which uh, our our guests can explain probably why that's not really a legitimate position for uh the owners to take because there are certain things that you sort of have to negotiate but i'm not a labor lawyer so i don't know that very very well um but the posturing is dumb uh rob manford after the lockout hit issued a letter to fans quote unquote which gave the the owner's position and all of this which it was you know a propaganda document and it was obviously written way way in advance of the uh, cba actually expiring uh, and then also at that time the major league baseball uh, website mlb.com completely scrubbed itself in pravda-esque fashion uh, of any reference to modern players, current players, there's no news on the front page. Even though there were big major free agent signings the day before, everything is about baseball history, the Hall of Fame, the good old days. And even the players' pictures were taken off of the website uh, in, in a very drama queen sort of fashion. Uh, I do know enough about labor law and about uh, name, image, and light likeness law that that was not required. That was a giant temper tantrum. Uh, but but yeah, that's where we are right now. Everybody is going to play up to their sides. Rob Manfred is going to give quotes about how baseball is dying and the small markets can't compete because he has a bunch of small market owners. He has to make sure, know that he is being a tough guy. Tony Clark is going to say a bunch of things on behalf of the players, and then things will cool down after about a month or so, and they're going to get talking again. That's my guess. Got it. So, so Jean-Marc and Alyssa, I, does this sound familiar to you? Is this normal? And it's just more high profile or is this, I mean, how, how do you, what's your sense of this from, from the work that you guys do? The answer is yes and no as to whether it, it's normal. Um, you know, lockouts are, uh, I wouldn't say common, but they, they happen in, you know, in all sorts of industries. They're less common uh, now, just given where we are with the uh, worker shortage and, um, and, and all of that. Um, so, uh, but it's not an unusual tactic for an employer to use to pressure employees into um, agreeing to their agreeing to their terms. Um, it's obviously different from the context that Alyssa and I see it in, which is usually lower-paid <laughs> workers, where when the employer um, implements a lockout, 
it has an immediate impact on on the employees. I mean, they don't get a paycheck. Um, they don't get they don't get to work. Their benefits could um, uh, could expire. Um, I don't know if there are any other industries where there's a lockout and during a period where the employees aren't working anyway, which is what's you know what's happening now with the with the players. And obviously, you know, as I think Craig was was sort of saying, um, you know, things are going to simmer for a while. And I think the the owners will, you know, push this, uh, try to push this as close to the uh, spring training and the season as, as possible. The pressure, the you know, the union. You know, when I've um, experienced, you know members who've been locked out in the past, it's um, very common for uh, not just the average person on the street, but the press uh, not to know what a lockout is or mix up a lockout and a strike. Um, and, you know, I've already seen that uh, a couple of times um, with this lockout. So definitely uh, not everyone understands the difference or mixes up, you know, what happened quote unquote, the last time, whether it was a lockout or strike. Um, so that's something we're always talking about here in terms of making sure that we clarify um, what's actually going on when we, uh, when we talk about a lockout. Another thing I'll just add is, you know, one of the differences um, between what's going on here and what happens in other industries is that, um, you know, when you have a lockout, um, usually the employer can um, hire replacement, temporary replacement, um, workers. That's, I know it's been done in base, baseball, um, but uh, it's a lot harder to do because you have, uh, you know, you have such skilled um, uh, labor. And I'll actually just, if you don't mind, tell a really quick story about what happened in 94, 95 um, during the, uh, I think that was the last big uh, labor dispute. Um, but I was in college at the time and um, I get a call from my my cousin, and he says, "Hey, the Toronto Blue Jays are uh, holding tryouts um, for for players for replacement players. Do you want to go with me and try out?" And I'll say that's the closest I've ever come to crossing a picket line in my life. Um, but I did not I did not do that. And the closest you've come to playing in Major League Baseball. <laughs> yes. Yes. that come to mind, which is what is, I mean, I, the, the bargain, the CBA expired. So this is kind of a natural time, but you don't have to do this now. Right. And, and there is a finite amount of time. So what, what are the owners hoping to accomplish other than having, other than petulance kind of for its own sake, what are they hoping to accomplish? And then I had another question, which was maybe for all of us, but um, you know, owners are making a lot of money, right. And what they want to do, as I see it is make more money, which is what owners do. But I'm wondering for a lot of the individual owners, we know that if, if there's no more baseball, that a lot of players really lose out on their, on their income. If there's no more baseball, how does this really affect the bottom lines of the individuals and entities that own these ball teams? Well, I'm presuming that, I mean, all, if not almost all of the owners are billionaires. Yeah. And, and presumably with other income streams and, and, Another business interest up the wazoo, right? Well, you mentioned that. It's funny because I was I was on a radio show this morning and the host asked me that exact question about, you know, what what do the owners care? They're 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 rich. And I and I told them, you know, based on my legal experience representing wealthy people and just watching how wealthy people operate, especially baseball owners, they've been this way too. It doesn't matter <laughs> that they that they could observe this because rich people don't want to leave any money on the table generally, even if it's not fundamentally changing their existence. I, I had a client who was literally a billionaire once and he would walk around his house and complain about people leaving lights on because the electric bill got big. This, this is a very different mindset than most of us have. And we saw this last year during the, uh, the negotiations about resuming baseball uh, during, during the pandemic. Uh, there was this idea out there of like, okay, well, you guys can absorb this. You're, you're worth, you know, Steve Cohen of the Mets is worth like $16 billion. You can handle it. Um, but that's not the point. The point is there is X millions of revenue that we're not capturing. And that's an issue that motivates a lot of folks. So I think if owners start to lose games or the, the possibility of losing revenue at the beginning of the season, it's still going to bother them. And they're still going to be affected by it, even if it might be irrational. What I'm curious about is that 
is that could, I mean, is it possible if you're Steve Cohen, you know, to take the energy and the capital that you're tying up with the Mets and, and use it more lucratively somewhere else? They, they like to keep those things separate, even though there's completely no separation for so many of the ownership groups. They, publicly speaking, they like to pretend that the team is its own thing that doesn't impact them personally or their other businesses and vice versa. And that's how they can say things like, I'm losing money. Well, because it's separate from your network, which isn't losing money, or it's separate from your investment hedge fund, which which isn't losing money. So I think the idea of I'm going to take whatever I was going to put into the Mets or into one of my teams and then put resources somewhere else, they'll say, no, I can't. The team's going to go bankrupt. I have to lay everybody off because the team is completely separate. I agree with you totally, Craig, about um, the money and and wanting to make as many as much profit as possible, no matter how much money they already have. Um, I'll also add, in addition to that, and one thing we see a lot here with our members is that, um, you know, it'll become clear sometimes that the employers are spending quite a bit more uh, on a contract fight than they would have um, if they had just bargained fairly, right? And so the question often comes up, like, for, why are they spending all this money on lawyers? They're spending even more than they would have if they would just agree to a fair contract. So part of it is money and, and part of it is control, right? The ownership class feels like they own everything, including including um, their employees, um, they're the hired help, they're supposed to do as they're told. And so, um, you know, the, you know, that's for me, that's one reason why, even though they don't have to, uh, clearly they're locking out the players because they want to remind them who's in control. Um, and often we see they're willing to, to spend even more money uh, than they would have to, just to send that message that they have the power, they're, they're in control, they're the owners and employees um, are just to obey and do what they're told. It's about power, yeah. And I'll, I'll add to this that it's not just a matter of philosophical, I don't wanna leave money on the table. It's, I mean, that's what the core of the dispute is right now. Major League Baseball's revenues have, with the exception of the, the blip from the pandemic, Major League Baseball's revenues have gone up more than tenfold in the past 15 to 20 years. Um, this is not a 1994 or 1981 style fight of there's only so much money there and we're trying all to survive and we should get it or not. That was always a little disingenuous anyway, but there was a lot more truth to it uh, 20, 30 years ago. Now it's, there is more money than we could possibly deal with. And the player's position is, well, we would like a larger share of those greatly increased revenues. And the owner's position is that is completely illegitimate and unreasonable and we won't even negotiate it. Um, it, it's not a matter of we're going to be in trouble if we can't keep the current share. It's we don't want to. That's really what it boils down to. That's one of the themes throughout what's going on with labor right now. I mean, you look at the the John Deere strike um, that they just had. Why, you know, why are they striking now when um, or why were they striking? I think they have a T.A., uh, but when you know the employer was offering some some wage increases, well, the employer was also um, I think they had made six billion dollars in in profit, you know, in in the last year during the during the pandemic. So they were they were doing great. They were still trying to extract from the employees, especially the uh, lower tier, the newer uh, employees by taking away their benefits and, and, and all of that. But in all of these labor disputes you see right now, um, the employers are doing pretty well. They're not, they're not struggling. Um, and I think that's one reason why we're seeing more collective action uh, over the past uh, couple of years. That's actually something I wanted to pick up on. I mean, so the, the solidarity um, and I think Craig, you, I think maybe you wrote this someplace or I'm just stealing it from you that, um, the way Rob, Rob Manfred and baseball has been posturing and, and the kinds of things they have been saying have only served to fur further solidify the, the, the players with each other. Um, and the, that's, so that's, that's become an interesting dynamic to me. Yeah. It's funny. The, 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 the one that was really obvious this past week was when they, when they scrubbed the website and they got rid of all the player pictures, they replaced them with these sort of stock silhouette pictures of just a figure with a baseball cap and so a bunch of players went on twitter on thursday morning and thursday afternoon and changed their avatar to 
the the stock picture and they were joking and they were sort of mocking rob manford for doing that but you know like anything else if if you have a point of commiseration and a common enemy and something that you could uh you know, rally around however petty it may be that's something and you know the one thing that players did not have for a couple of cycles there in between the 94 95 strike and uh, maybe the last couple of years has been that level of sort of solidarity. The, the reason, a big reason why the union was was negotiating fairly poor CBAs for themselves, in my view, is there was never a credible uh, threat of a strike that they could that they could put out there. They just they knew that the players weren't together on that. And so when you see even these sort of superficial markers, uh, and then more more importantly, you see like last summer when they were talking about the restart during the pandemic, when you hear comments from Max Scherzer and uh, and Andrew Miller and some of the the players who are very active in the players' association talking, you know that there's a very different level of education uh, about the issues than there was maybe even ten years ago, and there's certainly a lot more involvement and commitment on the part of the players now and seeing little things like that are are, are fun but it's important it, it is important I, I what's what strikes me about this is that from the from the time of like catfish hunters big free agent contract with the yankees and the conclusion of the 81 strike and the, that that period which was the first kind of burst of free agency the the alarm at how much baseball players were being paid was the dominant media coverage of anything to do with the business side of baseball. Millionaires playing a child's game, all that kind of crap. And, and the baseball, MLB, kind of lived off that and perpetuated that as long as they could for, for obvious reasons. What strikes me is that to do that effectively, you have to, on the one hand, beat the players up for trying to make money, trying to make their fair share of the money. But then you also have to tell the story of baseball in a way that kind of sepia-toned you know, Lou gehrig kind of way. Um, what, what I wonder is that given that the commissioner is someone who is, I think we could charitably say, not a gifted communicator, and is somebody who has not evinced any real interest in the game of baseball the way you or I, any of us as fans might, or people just love the game, do you think that that, that, that meaningfully damages the MLB's negotiating position, or is that just me being kind of Fetchy. I don't know. I, I I don't I don't think it matters that much. I, there, there's a big thing about PR uh, with the baseball strikes. I mean, you know, baseball players are public figures and celebrities and stuff, so that's why there's a lot more attention to it. Um, but people that I talk to at the Players Association, you know, I I used to say what a lot of people said about, well, you guys should you know be more upfront with PR. You guys should tell your story. And I say we don't care. I mean, for one thing we've had 50, 60 years to tell our story and it hasn't sunk in at all. Fans are still generally going to think that we're just a bunch of whining millionaires and and it doesn't move the needle at all. And everything that we do gets done at the table. It doesn't get done in the press. Um, And that's why you don't see the players association with, I mean, they, they do things. I I mean, don't get me wrong. They, they try to talk to reporters. They try to put things out there, but they don't have a, a, a really active PR plan when it comes to this because they don't think they need it. And I think the same thing goes for Major League Baseball. Uh, Rob Manfred has basically been a poor communicator and has worn a black hat uh, in almost any public conf- controversy that is, the game has been involved for, for years. And it hasn't really affected him at all. I don't think it's affected the owner's position at all. He answers to 30 people, and they're the 30 people that own baseball teams. And uh, so I think it makes the sport overall look bad to people that are only sort of Com- passively paying attention to it uh, to have Rob, for- Rob Manfred say stupid stuff. Uh, but I don't think it changes the dynamic between them and the players at all. But don't you think that like the public perception is important to both sides because they don't want, you know, a decline in, in interest in baseball, you know, fans to get fed up and say, you know, I'm not, I don't know if fans really, really do this. I, I wouldn't, I would, you know, I'm going to be a baseball fan no matter what happens. But um, I don't know if the general public gets fed up enough uh, if they feel like they're just watching a bunch of, you know, overgrown children making millions of dollars or greedy owners, you know, um, taking advantage of, of the players. To, to contradict myself a little bit, I think everyone's accepted that. I think, I think sports fans know that this is, this is not, it's not that late 70s period where people I mean, genuinely, some had nefarious conservative goals and some just genuinely, oh, my goodness, there is so much money in this game. And I think everyone accepts that. And I think where, where I agree with you is that 
The worst case for everyone in terms of bottom line is losing 50 games in the beginning of the season or something really dramatic like that, where you will probably see a dip in attendance. But it doesn't, I guess what Craig's point is, I think you're probably right, is it doesn't really hurt MLB if their image takes a, if, if the players look better in the eyes of the, of the fans or vice versa. So maybe that that's just, we're just watching it and you're right. I mean, Manfred always looks dreadful. So, but, but he's, if he's delivering higher revenues, you know, his, his constituency doesn't care. And I think an important point there is less so now that at any time will Major League Baseball and the clubs be affected by an immediate downturn in public opinion. Uh, they were concerned people weren't going to come back to the gate. People weren't going to buy buy tickets after the 94-95 strike. And it took a little while. It really took until, you know, first there was that bump when Cal Ripken broke Lou Gehrig's record and then the 98 home run chase with with uh, Sosin McGuire. But after that, you know, things were way better than they were even before. They, the lesson there was it bounced back, even if it took a little while. Now, as I have said on this podcast 10 times, and I write like three times a week at the newsletter, um, Major League Baseball's revenues are so much less dependent on game ticket game sales, ticket sales than it ever has been. The The TV contracts are locked in for for years and in some cases, decades. Uh, the the revenues from real estate and gambling and everything else aren't going anywhere. Uh, they don't want games canceled because it'll keep fewer people from coming down, make fewer people come down. But there are there are way more buffers between Major League Baseball's bottom line and fickle public opinion than there ever have been in the past. And Major League Baseball has willingly embraced in a lot of important ways its its status as a niche sport. It won't say that, but it has behaved in a way that they know they will never be the national pastime again. And in some ways, it will be very fine and endurable if half the public thinks that they're terrible. See, this is another way in which this current labor struggle is completely different from what Alyssa and I deal with. And Alyssa could probably speak to it better than I could because she's involved in a lot of active um, campaigns where getting community support, um, certainly from the community you live in, but even sometimes nationally is, is huge. And you need that uh, on your side. Um, uh, look at the, the, the Kellogg strike and, you know, the call to stop eating Raisin Bran and, you know, all, all of that, that, that's very important, I think, for, um, for the workers to, to be seen as being reasonable and um, righteous uh, so that they can have public support. It's interesting, um, you know, listening to you talk about, you know, whether the public perception matters. Um, so I guess one question I have is, you know, you know, if that's the case, I mean, at this point, is it, are we really just coming, going to come down to see who outlasts who? I think so. I, I mean, I, I think the biggest question right now, owners are not sure if the players will cave. They've caved. Mm. They've caved several times uh, since 94, 95. Um, and they, I think, need to figure out if the if the players will not come off of the idea of we want a you know five year track to free agency. Um, everybody's going to start to get a little scared. I think right now the owners think that sometime in the next month and a half to two months, there, there will be movement and we'll be able to throw something at them that won't give them what they want. That's the biggest thing right now. But that's the other thing. Like, I mean, you, you have, correct me if I'm wrong, Craig, but you have the owners in baseball saying that there are issues that the players want to negotiate that they just not going to talk about. At this point, I think that's posturing. Um, and you guys, I'll ask you too. I, there's aren't there like mandatory terms of negotiation or compul- I forget even what the term is. There. Yeah, mand- mandatory subjects of of bargaining where you at least have to sit down. If one side wants to talk about it, you have to talk about it. You don't have to agree, but you have to talk about it. Um, and and actually, you know. Uh, when Tova invited me to be on the podcast, I actually went back and read the um, Sonia Sotomayor decision uh, that came out of the 94-95 strike where she issued the injunction um, or granted the NLRB's injunction um, to the the players. And she gives a nice little recap of of not not just the the way the, the system works with free agency and everything, but exactly what is a mandatory subject of bargaining. And it's it's really most most of the important items. Anything that affects your the, your pay, 
or your working conditions in any way. So the the, the salary caps um, would certainly come come into that. The time she speaks about um, arbitration. So the the time in uh, you know how many years uh, it takes for you to become eligible for arbitration. All of those are mandatory subjects of of bargaining that they have to discuss. Um, they don't have to agree, but they have to discuss. Yeah, and and so what we saw up to the lockout, there was pretty reliable reporting from multiple sources that Major League Baseball's position in the very brief talks they had this last week was, no, we're not talking about those things. And that's why there was really not a lot of substantive negotiation. My view of that and a few other people whose opinion I trust on this sort of thing is that was, again, posturing. Look, Dick Monfort, who is the the head owner in the negotiating group right now, it's not Manfred sitting at the table, it's Dick Monfort uh, and, uh, and the assistant... Uh, commissioner whose name is completely escaping me right now. Um, they're, they're the ones who uh, are sitting there negotiating with Bruce Meyer on the other side for the players. Dick Monfort is a zealot when it comes to labor stuff. Uh, and there's a, there's a core, there's probably like 10 owners who are just like the, the extreme end of screw those players in that union. You, you got to make those guys happy. You know, Steve Cohen and, and Hal Steinbrenner and John Henry and those guys, they're probably willing to throw a little bit more towards the players because they they just know that's how business works. But you have to keep your constituency in line. And to get to a place where they can make a deal later, they at least have to acknowledge the feelings of those 10 or 15 hardliners or however many there are. So the thinking right now is what's happened in the last week or two has been a lot of theater aimed at making sure that the owners, you know, say that they're being tough and then they can come back off it later and they're being magnanimous in that situation as opposed to just getting rolled over. So that's, there's a lot of dancing going on right now. What's something that strikes me, Craig, and it's really uh, reiterates or reinforces your point about baseball becoming a niche sport, whether or not it wants to publicly say that is according to my uh, uh, calculations, we're about 36 hours at this recording now into this strike or into this lockout, sorry. And, and the coverage is so different than what it was in 81 or 94. That's why I had said the word strike. I was thinking about those strikes. There are no articles about the baseball as a national trust, about little kids. Now, part of it is because it's not during the season, it's during the hot stove league, but also because that's not baseball anymore. And, and, and the media is finally caught up with something that's been true for a while. So, but I think that also, you know, Baseball is not just a niche sport now, Craig, but as we've talked about before on this podcast, it's a niche sport that is really trying to cash in on addicting people to gambling. And and once you're hooked, you know, it it doesn't matter if the team is good or bad if you're betting on how many, whether the next pitch is going to be a ball or a strike. The fact that the stakeholders are completely different right now than they than they were in 94 or 95, I think is going to be a fascinating thing to watch. If you are MGM, or you are DraftKings, or you are one of these companies that are paying Major League Baseball a lot of money right now and making a lot of money for Major League Baseball, uh, and vice versa. You know they don't want games canceled. That is where the money comes from. People betting on games, and it would be interesting to find, read an article. And I'm guessing sometime in the next month or two we'll see one about how you know the gambling industry does not want games to be canceled, and maybe they lean on the owners a little bit. They have a lot of leverage over them right now. So we go from worrying about small children not loving baseball to gambling industry not being. Happy about the situation. The gamble industry is saving baseball. Oh my gosh, it's true. The gambling for all you've said, Craig, about the gambling industry, you may eat your words when they come and save it's, baseball. They're not the hero we want, but they're the hero we need. Right, have they put out odds on whether an agreement is reached before <laughs> the uh... have they? Oh my god. I'm sure they have. And what day and you know, which provisions and So I'm um, just thinking about, you know, um, what what y'all have been saying for the past few minutes and, you know, and whether, you know, the PR really matters, whether the story really matters. I mean, I have to tell you, you know, somebody who does does messaging and as John Mark mentioned, has to think a lot about community support and, um, you know, how to turn uh, workers into issues, into social justice issues. Um, you know, if I were talking to the players, association, what I would say is, A, you definitely need um, a PR um, 
a communications plan, PR plan, messaging plan, um, you know, if sort of one side outlasting the other is going to be a major thing, especially, you know, if uh, the casinos and gambling operations are really going to care and possibly squeeze the owners, um, then, you know, A, I think, you know, community support, um, not just in terms of the leverage it puts on the owners, but in terms of just psychologically helping uh, lockout workers, um, you know, stay psychologically strong enough that they can hold out. You know, we say one day longer, one day stronger. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, psychology is just like a huge, huge part of this. Um, and if you feel like you have the community support and you can outlast the other side, um, that can make a big difference. You know, in like, we're 10 years after Occupy Wall Street, people talking about the 1%, um, you know, things are different uh, in America. Uh, than they were in the 80s and 90s. You know, as a Red Sox fan, like I can tell you, if I'm the the players, um, all I'm going to do is talk about how the Red Sox owners are rich enough to buy the Pittsburgh Penguins. I mean, that tells you right there how much money these owners have, and I would just be all over that um, and talking about that kind of stuff. Uh, Tony day. Clark, are you listening? You should be hiring Alyssa Layton. It's <laughs> it's funny. I. I've had this conversation. I don't think I'm speaking out of school. I, I know people that at the union and I'm, there aren't a ton of really labor friendly baseball reporters out there. And I've been one for a while. Um, and so I, I've developed relationships with some people there and I've told them in just sort of informal conversations. I'm like, and they'll tell me something about their position. Cause they want to educate me as someone who might write about this stuff. And I'll say, well, you should put that out there. You should sit down for an interview. Let me interview you or, you know, something like that. And they're like, nah, <laughs> we 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 don't think so we like we 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 will educate people who ask and we will put the information out there for various people but we're not they don't want to put a face on it they I mean Tony Clark will make uh, appearances Bruce Meyer will give a few comments when he leaves a negotiating session but they're just not interested in that and I think part of it is the DNA of the the players association Marvin Miller was he did not care at all about that stuff and actively hated it. His successor, Don Fair, is and was the same way and has been the same way since he's taken over the hockey union. Um, and and then Michael Weiner, who was uh, who preceded Tony Clark, was was also more of a I'm not good in front of cameras. I don't want to do this. They they have never wanted to put a face on it. Now, granted, baseball players are a great face, and uh, the problem. But the problem there is during the 94-95 strike, uh, the head of the players negotiating committee was Tom Glavin of the Atlanta Braves. And uh, Tom Glavin would go out in front of the cameras and the thinking was, hey, he's, you know, a guy on one of the best teams in baseball and he's going to and he's he's a very educated guy and he can handle this stuff. And he was just raked over the coals and he talked about how it was one of the worst experiences of his life. And, you know, players don't want to do this either. There's just like this lack of anybody who wants to step up. Wait a minute. Now, so that was a poor choice at that time, but is it Max Scherzer, the, the dude now? I mean, that's got to be terrifying. I was talking to Jean-Marc about this. Are you sitting, I mean, is he there? Are they sitting across the table from Max Scherzer? Because that would be fucking terrifying. I'm not sure I agree with your characterization of Miller because in from like 77 to 1982, you could open the sports page without seeing Marvin Miller's photograph. Right. He had a huge media presence, but I would look at the DNA from another uh, angle, which also brings me back to Marvin Miller. Some of you may know that when the players reached out to Marvin Miller to get him to, to, to be the head of the MLBPA, when he called back after agonizing to take the job, they said to him, that's great. And the owners have suggested who you should make for your deputy. Now think about that. The owners have suggested, what? Like, what is, how is that possibly appropriate? But who, who did Miller, who did the owners propose? Richard Nixon. Now, <laughs> now, the, the reason I say this, just to give you a sense, because I wonder whether there's another dynamic here. I wonder how many players in the MLBPA had parents or grandparents who told them never to cross a picket line. I wonder how many of the guys in the MLBPA don't think twice about walking into a restaurant or office building. There's a picket line out front. Solidarity goes more than one way. Right. So so and also the we've talked about this on this podcast. If the ML, the, I suspect that the majority of Americans on major league rosters, if they had, a, you know, in, in 20 20, if they voted, more went for Trump than for Biden. This is now that's true in a lot of other unions, too, I would assume. But this is a union made up of conservative people. So this language, this approach does not come naturally or easily. Now, that 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 underscores the need to have someone who knows what they're doing come in and advise them how to do it. But it also strengthens their reluctance. I mean, they see this. I, I don't know how they see this, but I don't know that 
I mean, I think what we're doing today is really kind of important because we're embedding this in a discussion or trying to of labor more broadly. But I don't think the players see it that way. There's a cognitive dissonance among the players. A couple of years ago, uh, Marriott workers were on strike and ball players and teams frequently uh, stay at Marriott properties when they're on the road. And there were a couple of people, uh, Sean Doolittle, who's you know very labor savvy, the relief pitcher, and a few other players who were like, "Hey, maybe we don't stay at Marriott for this next road trip." And uh, that was just sort of like, "Nah, never mind." And they did it anyway, and they crossed picket lines, and it was just a giant pain in the ass. And uh, yeah, so with if you talk to them about the issues facing them and their current labor battle, a lot of them are surprisingly conversant, and and even will adopt the language that you typically see in in labor disputes, but it just does not extend very far beyond baseball. I assume that there's a huge education component for any group of workers when stuff like this happens that, you know, I don't know if seeing themselves as maybe, maybe this has changed now with the way, I mean, we should talk a little bit about how, you know, labor, labor dynamics literally in the last few months and, and, you know, whether that is reflected at all also, but I'm sure that many workers, I mean, you, you look at a thing like Bessemer, right? With the Amazon workers, losing badly now as we are you know we very happily they, they will be voting again but we don't know if that will be successful but i you know i think that there it was a failure of education i assume well, yeah that was a failure of a lot of things um but you know also i think you know in terms of in terms of the the messaging for um for the players if they were going to try to do that i mean i mean you're right that many of them are conservative. However, you know, being a good trade unionist is not is not necessarily uh, mean that you're left wing or socialist, right? So um, those two don't necessarily go together. And I mean, the the trick is, you know, with workers, no matter where they are, the workplace, the industry, um, helping teach them how to talk about their issues in a way that resonates with the public. Like this is an issue and it doesn't come naturally for most people, regardless of what their political ideology happens to be. But, you know, presumably the, you know, the Players Association has proposals based on what they think players want. So if that's what players want, like it honestly doesn't matter um, you know, what their thoughts are on other parts of the labor movement or, you know, who's running for president, because if they care about those issues um, and they think that public perception matters, then um, I think working on that messaging uh, with, with players would be, would be really important. So, I mean, I, I hope they do that. Can I turn it for a second to how this impacts the minor league? Because as we all know too well, um, the minor league is not organized, does not have a union. Um, and so what happens with those guys now and, and uh, in that whole situation? The, uh, the big difference is whether you're on the 40-man roster or not. There are minor leaguers who are on the team's 40-man roster. You become a member of the Players Association once you are put on 40-man roster. So uh, those guys will, will not play if the minor, if this, you know, once the minor league season begins, if the majors are still locked out, uh, the, the non 40 man roster minor leaguers are largely unaffected. Uh, they're, they're not part of a bargaining group. They're not subject to the CBA, uh, as what happened in 94, 95, they will play their games for the most part, just without those 40 man roster uh, members. And, uh, in fact, if I remember correctly in 94, 95, they even, like broadcast some minor league games, you know, like NBC or CBS or whoever had the rights, then put a couple of triple a games, you know, in prime time, because there were no baseball games in August and September of, of 1994. Um, so that really won't affect anything. Uh, well, except a- that they'll continue playing with really crappy pay and crappy conditions. Oh yeah. They, yeah. They, so- they'll, they'll still be playing their game. <laughs> Although, you know, you might see uh, as a means of, uh, uh, putting pressure on the on the players, you know, maybe the minor leaguers will will get a bit of a, a better treatment. Maybe someone will buy a nice, uh, you know, clubhouse spread for them uh, after a few games. The owners will, you know, you guys are our guys now. Uh, you know, I I think that the owners learned in '95 that the replacement player gambit just was never going to go over, and it's not going to happen again. But say they wanted to do it again, butter up your AAA guys who aren't on the 40 man roster for a while. You'll get them to cross a picket line. What bugs me, this goes back to the, the Lincoln's point about, you know, these folks uh, growing up, never being told not to cross picket line and, and all of that. It, these guys are in such a 
public position um, that if they wanted to show real solidarity, like like these other unions that are striking now, they're they're all showing solidarity with the new employees, right? The the they they had given concessions to their employers 10, 12 years ago um, to pay newer employees less than what the more senior employees are making. And now they're making a stand and saying, we're not going to accept these, you know, uh, 10% wage increases for ourselves unless you bring along, you know, the newer employees, unless you give them a pension like we have. So what bothers me is that you know the the players could really be putting pressure on um, Major League Baseball to help the people who are less fortunate than than they are, and and really show solidarity. And I think, frankly, that would help with the public messaging, um, and would help uh, with the image of the game, um, and would certainly help the the players who are. I mean, I I don't know the details of this, so correct me if I'm wrong. But I saw something that said that minor league players make something like $15,000 a year. Um, and, you know, the, if they have a family, which I know they're all young, but they can't afford to take their kids to a major league ball game, you know, on, on, on that salary. So, you know, this is wishful thinking. Um, but, you know, I would hope that the, the players would use this microphone and this labor dispute to talk about those, those issues as well. That's, that's something that a lot of people have really hoped for for a long time. And, and one of the, the dirty secrets of uh, the Players Association's position over the last several cycles has been uh, selling out, for lack of a better term, younger players, minor league players, amateurs who have yet to be drafted in favor of things that would benefit veteran players who are, you know, established in the union. Uh, they, it, it costs a, you know, a 28 year old player who's well-established in the minor league major leagues. It, it's of no cost to him to say, okay, well, we'll reduce the draft to 10 rounds from 15 and we will cap bonuses for international assignees at some low number. It doesn't matter to them. If anything, it makes it harder for a young guy to come up and take his job later. And they've thrown the owners these huge concessions for, you know, with respect to the minor leagues and, and amateurs who aren't union members uh, to get things they want. And they don't really want that out there that much. And when they're reminded of it, they get really, really prickly. It is a potentially very interesting, different model of what it means to be a baseball player, right? I mean, the, the model for baseball players is that the competition is super intense, the funnel is extremely narrow, and the rewards are enormous. It's a lucrative business. There's no reason why they shouldn't get those rewards, but the question of how to spread those rewards out. And right now, a very important issue, I think, is this issue of lowering the number of years before you get to free agency, because people don't pay for older players anymore. I mean, that's just the way the game has changed. So I, I would support something like that. But the next step would be not just how do we make sure that established major leaguers get their share, but thinking about what it means to be a baseball player more broadly, which would, of course, give much more power to the union if you brought more people in. Now you have a bigger movement. Maybe we should close this out by all singing the internationally. <laughs> all together now, no? <laughs> Zoom is very bad with singing. All right. If nobody's going to sing, I will just thank Jean-Marc and Alyssa <laughs> for, for joining us today. Thank you so much. This has been so interesting. And um, next time we will have Adrian back to have a very special interview with him. Did I say something about the Hall of Fame? About the Hall of Fame. Um, and so with that, that's a wrap. Mm-hmm.